what concerns me the most about it is that we're we're losing the ability to to find spaces that are outside the reach of human sounds. Meet Nathan Wallach. I am a professor of digital arts here at Stetson University. Digital arts for us is really anything that involves being creative with a computer. So it's it's a broad field and that's intentional. It's actually one of the older digital arts programs for undergrads in in the country. Uh, we've been around since 1996. So uh, we've got a, a uh, in, in digital years, a long history uh, in that regard. And I think what's interesting about it is that we take students that might be interested in sound, but we also teach them a little bit of, uh, you know, that they can take classes in video, they can take classes in graphic design, they can take classes in electronic music and audio production. We start with the premise that the computer makes it easier for artists to move between mediums, not harder, and we should have a curriculum that supports that. And that, that was very intentional in the way the, the program was designed uh, and, and as part of its history. Uh, I actually was one of the first students to graduate from the program here at Stetson uh, and then went on and did my graduate work at Northwestern University, completed a PhD there. Kicked around a few one-year stints at different uh, universities and then found my way back to the faculty here. And I have I think I'm going on 16 years now on the full-time faculty here at Stetson. So I ran across Nathan's work while doing research for a project that I was working on, and I was intrigued. So I gave him a call, and he agreed to do an interview. I wondered what drew him to the Orlando area. I'm from this area originally, uh, the Orlando area of uh, Florida. So Central Florida is is where I call home. So I grew up in the the shadow of the the theme parks and and all that sort of stuff going on in Orlando. But it's also a place where we've got interesting uh, diversity of uh, environmental habitats. Right, uh, you've got the the beach not too far away, but you've also got forests and pine scrub and and uh, natural springs uh, and all this sort of stuff what was kind of part of my I don't know, DNA growing up uh, if you will as part of my 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 interest in my background so that's a little bit about me uh, and 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 uh, in my upbringing and and what I do now basically as a professor of digital arts here at Stetson if you're a regular listener you know that I'm drawn to people who have had what I like to call non-linear careers well Nathan's one of those He's a musician, a programmer, a professor, a researcher, and a wildlife sound recordist. I had a hard time pulling all those pieces together into a coherent combination, so I asked him, how did it happen? Well, it started with music, uh, so I'll start there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of those kids that grew up playing in the high school band and kind of cut my teeth on music that way. So uh, I think Florida is a, a state that does have a, a rich history of music education, band, particularly band education, and so that, that's where I, I kind of got my start as a, as a musician uh, doing that. And then I wanted to go off to college and study music. You know, composing sounded interesting to me uh, that uh, as a route. Uh, and then my first year here at Stetson, we were offering for the first time a course called Computer Music. And I was like, wait a minute, I can actually combine my interest in computers with my interest in, in, in music. I'm of the generation that grew up with the, the Apple II in the classroom. I can remember fondly in school, like that was that was one of the things. If we got our work done, we could we could get time on the Apple II and, and learning in, in elementary school to program in basic. So when someone told me that I could combine my compute my interest in computers and music, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. I want to do that. 
that that's what led me in down the path of music technology and music technology being a, a, a focus of emphasis as I finished up my grad, my undergraduate studies and then going on to do a PhD in music technology at Northwestern. So Nathan ended up doing a PhD in music technology. I asked him how that got him into recording wildlife sounds. In doing electronic music, uh, one always has to come up with interesting sounds, interesting uh, material to actually make the music out of. And so field recording started out as a way to kind of get interesting samples for my electronic music composing. So we, we had this mobile performance group where we'd go out and we'd record a bunch of sounds uh, in the city and we'd use those as the percussion samples to then do a performance in the same city, in the same location. So it was a kind of an interesting blend, show up, capture sounds, edit them, do a performance all within the span of a few days. Uh, which ended up being a really rich uh, learning uh, experience for my students. But at some point, the the field recording started to take over, and I started to get interested in just being out away from the computers uh, and going out and doing field recording. The process of getting the material started becoming the main thing. And so more and more, I found myself out in nature doing uh, recordings. Recordings that increasingly featured the sounds of the natural world. We're on the St. John's River, which is a river that kind of, it it dumps into the ocean at Jacksonville, but it kind of goes south from there, uh, originates in Central Florida, and, 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 and it flows north up to Jacksonville. Part of what feeds that river are a lot of uh, natural springs that we have in this area. So uh, those springs end up being gathering places for people, uh, gathering places for animals. Uh, we have Blue Spring nearby, which is a gathering place each uh, winter for manatees. And we have De Leon Spring nearby, which is a gathering place for, for people, which has a really interesting history. So I, I started off a project where I was like, I'm going to go as often as possible and just capture the soundscape at DeLeon Spring. And my colleague, Chaz Underreiner, who's also on the faculty here, he uh, picked uh, Blue Spring and we kind of were were profiling the soundscape of these two natural springs that are nearby our campus. There's some shell middens on the property. So it goes from being a gathering place for Native Americans to being a, a plantation to being a, a, a winter retreat hotel in the post-Civil War era, uh, where you've got the train tracks going right nearby and the train tracks are still there. You still have a, plane, a train passing by uh, a few times a day to then being a tourist trap <laughs> kind of uh, location with a complete with a, a, a ski show and a, a jungle cruise uh, that kind of goes off into the forest. And then the property falls into private hands, but eventually it, it sold to the state and turned into a state park. And so now it's a state park that has this kind of interesting history of the property. All of that is evidenced in the soundscape at DeLeon. If you put hydrophones in the water at DeLeon, one of the things you'll hear, there's actually shells in the spring uh, and the spring is the spring has quite a bit of force. I mean, we're talking thousands of gallons an hour that it's pushing through. But the shells that the indigenous people used to discard into the spring are still in there, and they churn. So the spring has this really natural, this really interesting sound of these these shells that are churning in the in the this, the force of the spring. The soundscape is very interesting, and it, it was interesting spending a year just going back there time and time again, listening and getting a sense of the profile of it. 
Nathan shared his recordings from the Springs, and some interesting things happened. Posting about that led to my connection with uh, Eve Pear over at the Atlantic Center for the Arts. She and I got together and started plotting and, and planning a lot of different programming. So I, I ended up being named the uh, artist in residence over at Canaveral National Seashore, which is on the coast here in Central Florida. And so uh, that provided me access to their property, recording at all hours of the day. So I did an interesting project there where I was recording on uh, Turtle Mound, which is a, another Indian midden that was uh, put there by the, the Native Americans, the Timucuan Indians. A lot of the Indian middens in this area were actually mined for, for road materials and property, basically. So they, they took what was the, the discarded shells that had grown up into these these like 10 meter tall uh, middens, mounds, and they were they were mined at the turn of the 20th century for, for road projects and concrete projects as, as material. So there's not as many of them surviving as there, there were 100 years ago. But the one at Turtle Mound is one of the best preserved, one of the largest. And it's, a, it's an interesting place uh, that you can now go and you can kind of, uh, they've got a walking path that you can take up to the top. Also out at Canaveral started a program called Young Sound Seekers, uh, which is a, a program for blind and partially sighted. Uh, youth and centered around the idea of their experience in the park centered on soundscape, right, right rather than landscape. That's kind of how my journey from, from musician to field recordist, environmentalist. Hopefully I kind of explained how, how I go from musician to programmer to teacher to field recordists uh, in, in a more or less linear path. I interview a lot of sound recordists because I'm inspired by what they do. There's one question I always ask. Why do people need to get out and deliberately listen to the sounds of the natural world? What concerns me the most about it is that we're, we're losing the ability to, to find spaces that are outside the reach of human sounds. Uh, I'm not somebody who want to ban everything human produced and we just kind of all regress back to pre-victorian era sounds basically I, I'm, I'm not i'm not that extreme but i do think that we need to have spaces and we need to have certain times that we could go and experience the space without uh sound so one of the things i i learned and in, in both recording at de leon and recording at uh, canaveral we have a lot of air traffic and i'm not even talking about the large commercial jet airliners. I'm talking about single engine aircrafts fly, flying around. The area right around De Leon and over De Leon is designated as a flight training area. So it's it's a place where they can teach pilots that are learning. Basically, it's it's designated as a zone by the FAA as safe to do that, which I guess makes sense because it's it's a forest and you want people to be doing that away from suburban neighborhoods and that sort of stuff. But it also means that people that are going there to try to get away from the sounds of, of human activity are, are going to be followed there by these planes that are going over there to do training exercises and that sort of stuff. Canaveral is similar. It's not designated a flight training area, but it's bordered on the south end by NASA which uh, and the Kennedy Space Center. So that, that does influence the soundscape because you've got them flying helicopters and other things like that. And you've also got the rocket launches.
growing up in this area, it's hard for me to not be inspired by space and space travel and that sort of stuff because I grew up watching rocket launches all the time. So I'm, I'm not proposing getting rid of that. But on other boundaries of Canaveral, there's I, I think I counted at least three or four small uh, regional airports, and they all feed into that area and they'll use Canaveral as a, an area where they can fly and sightsee. And again, I'm, I'm a realist. Uh, I'm not saying that we should ban all of this travel, but it would be nice if there were like you know, quiet hours, if, if, if you will, uh, where, you know, on a Saturday morning, I could be guaranteed that I'm going to go and I'm not going to hear a plane in the air. One of the things that I find most interesting about people like Nathan is that they're equal parts scientist and artist, which you've heard me say before, is a hallmark of truly creative people. I think I've referred in this podcast in the past to a book called The Age of Wonder by Richard Holmes. During the Romantic Age, he wrote, scientists made extraordinary leaps of discovery that were catalyzed by curiosity and a hunger to simply know. Charles Babbage built his difference engine, a machine with 25,000 moving parts that didn't work, until his wife, Ada Lovelace, fiddled with it and gave the world the first functional mechanical computer. She was the child of George Gordon, otherwise known as the poet Lord Byron. At the age of 27, she messed about with her husband's invention and in the process created the first programming language, which is why a commonly used language today is called Ada. Lord Byron's close friends included William Herschel, who, with his sister Caroline, built the largest telescopes ever created and made remarkable discoveries about the solar system. He was also close with Humphrey Davy, who conducted life-threatening experiments about the behavior of gases, advancing human knowledge of chemistry and physiology, and in the process, developing an explosion-proof mining lamp and discovering nitrous oxide. Davy's best friend? Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet who gave us Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan. Meanwhile, Michael Faraday discovered crucial things about the behavior of electricity and invented the electric motor. By night, he composed essays and poetry, and physician Mary Shelley was a healer by day, but in the evenings, she wrote her novel, Frankenstein. Born Mary Wollstonecraft, she married poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, who, while she wrote Frankenstein, wrote Ozymandias and Ode to the West Wind. My point is that the scientists who paired themselves with artists, either through love or friendship, were better at the science than they would have been without the inspiration of the other, and the artists professed universally that their abilities to do their own work were amplified and enriched by the perspective of their scientist partners and how they viewed the world. So I asked Nathan, how do you reconcile the tug-of-war that has to go on in your head between the science and the art? I feel the tension of the science versus the art, but I feel it externally, not internally. Because to me, they, they kind of oscillate back and forth. There's times where I'm more interested in the science of it, and there's times that I'm more interested in the art of it. And I mean, even going back to when I was you know, studying music composition, there's times when I would like start working on a on a, a patch or a program for what I thought was going to be a piece. And then I'd be like, you know what? I can't figure out what the piece is that's going to be about this. So let me just 
turn this into a program that I can then share with people as well. So, I mean, I, I think it feeds into the, the programmer aspect of, of me as well, because a lot of my earlier work in that regard, I mean, I, I developed software that people use to make their own art, plugins and, and, uh, and, and uh, audio processing plugins and those sorts of things. It was no less interesting to me, but it was, it was the same pursuit, right? I, I mean, I started building something and then I just, I didn't see a creative outcome for in it for myself, but I figured I'd go ahead and release it to the, the, the community to see what they came up with it creatively. And it was always uh, really cool to see what people came up with, with my, with my software. It is something that we've gotten away from in a kind of post-industrial society where we've started down this path of specialization. I, th- I think we lose something in that, which is the ability of those different spheres to influence each other. You know, I don't, know that I could be the field recordist I am without the the programming background that I have because it feeds into how I organize my my data and how I look at it you know keeping things organized keeping track of all of my my recordings through metadata and those types of things uh, all of that comes out of my background as a programmer having having good metadata about it looking at the the sound itself as data and as material that can be turned into a creative work is is also something that kind of comes out of my background uh, as as an artist definitely something that in the 21st century we're able to kind of return to this this kind of uh, dialogue between the arts and sciences a little bit more what i see in my students is it's not as much of a difference for them including graduate students we've only got around 3000 students so it's easier for me to go and talk to my colleagues in biology to go talk to my colleagues in environmental science uh, to talk to my colleagues in business about uh, things uh, as well. And I thrive on being in that kind of environment where I don't have to go very far to be in contact with people that are brilliant specialists in these different areas. One of the things I love is when we have talks where our faculty will talk about their research. Uh, I love going to that and hearing what people from different fields are are doing. And I always get inspired by it and always find connections back to my own work. The Fulbright Scholarship is a prestigious award, and it was awarded to Nathan not once, but twice. So uh, part of my work over the years has been being a, a Fulbrighter, and I've been honored to have done it twice, uh, which I've count myself as very fortunate and very glad to have had those experiences. The The first time was much more in the programming vein. Uh, I was working on a programming project and one of the other developers was based in Bergen, Norway. So uh, getting the chance to to live and work in Bergen, Norway, Norway with my family for, for six months was uh, an awesome experience, getting to know another culture, uh, getting to have my kids experience another culture um, at, at a young formative age was, was a, an amazing experience. Uh, the second time, I have a, a, a longtime uh, friend and colleague who teaches at the, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, and they had a call for uh, visiting professors at that uh, university through the Fulbright program. And so because I had that connection with him, um, was able to put together a proposal to, uh, again, uh, go and live abroad in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, and so, I mean, the connection there, if you're looking at like, why Norway, why uh, Scotland, they're both on the North Sea. So I think that was one of the, one of the things that I pitched to them the second time is like, look, I'm building this kind of North Sea network of uh, individuals that are interested in sound and, and to build uh, connections uh, with them there. Uh, that was much more a field recording project because the, the, the stage I was in my career doing a lot more field recording then. And the 
the project then was centered around going and recording in public parks, public lands. And uh, it just happened that uh, my application was put in before the pandemic and it was uh, it was granted just weeks before the pandemic shut down. And it was kind of in question whether I was going to get to go, but we made it work. We made, uh, we made the sacrifice as a family to kind of pick up and move and, and dive into their pit pandemic shutdown in early 2021, uh, which was no small feat uh, as, as a family. But uh, wow, what a wonderful uh, experience getting to experience the tremendous landscape of Scotland in 2021 as they were opening back up. Basically, we were like watching the the restrictions lift and just planning our travels like, okay, we now we can go to the county. Okay, well, we're going to go here. Uh, now we're going to go anywhere in the country. We're going to go here and we're going to go here and we're going to camp and we're going to do that. And it was just amazing and and got some amazing recordings out of that ex- experience too that I'm, I'm just now a year later starting to kind of uh, open back up and listen to and edit and uh, hope to release on Bandcamp here in the next few months. Probably the most Salient features for me were the sounds of the waves, uh, because coming from Florida, the waves sound pretty similar from beach to beach, but going to cliffs, going to rocky coastlines and recording the sounds of those waves was really interesting to to me, as well as the sounds of birds, Uh, a lot more tuneful bird song in the forests than uh, than I I find here in Florida, as well as uh, some amazing seabird colonies that are on those, those, those sea cliffs that are just, uh, I mean, one seabird colony that I recorded, the the head count is something like hundred thousand birds, basically nesting on these these cliffs. And so, just the the beautiful cacophony of those those birds uh, was was amazing to to be there and uh, record. And I count myself very fortunate to have gotten that opportunity. I can't say enough about the Fulbright program and what an amazing opportunity it is for both uh, young scholars, uh, but also for people like me who are, are in a, a, a position at a university to take time and go away and experience another culture and experience the world. So many things from those experiences fed back into what I taught in the classroom have made me a, a better teacher. Nathan Wallach, musician, programmer, researcher, wildlife sound recordist, and professor at Stetson University. Thank you, Nathan. Folks, you can learn more about Nathan's work at his faculty profile page at Stetson University's website or on YouTube or on Bandcamp. Check him out. His work is wonderful. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. 